0: Well, beloved, I would ask you to stand now for this portion where we will hear the Word of God read from Scripture. Um, The first reading will be from Hebrews chapter 5, verses 5 through 10. Hebrews 5, verses 5 through 10, the very Word of God. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience Through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. As for the word, I'd ask you to remain standing as we flip to our now second reading of Scripture, and this will be our sermon text. This is from Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. Uh, Verses 39 through 46. This is Christ our Lord praying at the Mount of Olives. Luke 22, verses 39 through 46. Herein is the very Word of God. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer... He came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. It's as for as the word of God. You may be seated. Well, let us from that enter into prayer for the Lord over this word. Father in heaven, we come before you and we are grateful that we're able to come together as your people to dwell in your word, to meet you in your word. God, as we, as we come to speak of these astonishing things that we've just read, the sorrow and the agony of our Lord, give us understanding, not only that would reside in our intellect and our minds, but that would move our very souls would move our very affections for you, God, would pierce us and would enliven us. Bless us, help us, guide us, O oh Lord, for your own glory, we pray. Amen. Well, it is, it's is—it's a pleasure to be with you all uh, this evening. I'll be here over the course of uh, the next few months, once a month, to uh, to exhort. And so, during that time, I want to do... Something of a series to give some continuity, but it'll be a short series at that. Um, what I want to do in our time together this evening and in the evenings going forward is I want to spend some time looking at Christ Himself and looking at our Lord and looking at Him from a few different perspectives, almost like a diamond. We'd rotate and see His beauty in the different angles as it glimmers. So this evening, I want to look at Christ's suffering, or Christ's agony, and not how we maybe ordinarily might do so. It's not not Christ undertaking the beatings at the hands of the Jews and the Romans and, and up on the cross. Those are all in view and much in line with what we're speaking of, but tonight more specifically, I want to speak of what happens before that. When our Lord goes before the Father in heaven in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he prays. I want to look at what that shows us about our Lord. The text we read here from Luke is not not an easy text to understand when we really dig in. It's a challenge. There's great difficulty here. If I'm being honest, it's quite an impossible task maybe for any man to do, let alone a man under care still. But in God's providence, this is what we have before us. To, To look at our Lord... I trust as we go on, we will see why this text is so weighty and why there's so much gravity in this passage. We must ask how how do we look at this and how do we rightly understand and explain and give proper focus to Christ's full humanity, his true humanity on one end, and his true divinity on the other hand? How do those work together in a passage like this? How do we explain this account of our Lord? as he's here in the garden and as un- as he is under such sorrow that he sweats blood my friends this is not just christ doing this for example or just to teach us this is not simply that it is not christ pretending to struggle to merely show us how we should deal with our sufferings no he really is struggling here he really is in agony he really is even sweating blood this is a real, actual event. Yet mysterious all the same. On the one hand, there's no chance that Christ will fail. There's no chance that he will not be obedient to death. No way. But on the other hand, he really is experiencing agony here. He really is experiencing sorrow, and he even asks the Father for another way. There's an internal struggle here that's going on in our Lord that should cause us to pause and to think and to take in what's happening. It's something that we should behold with great reverence and awe and wonder. My friends, all of Scripture is verily the Word of God. All of Scripture is inspired by God, all the same. But there's something about this passage here that almost forces us to acknowledge that This is something of of the deep things of God. It's almost as if, that, as we come to this passage, that the words that were spoken at the burning bush should be in our ears, that take the sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. There's a natural helplessness that one comes to when they try and dig into what what Christ is really experiencing here. By God's grace, we will try, we will rely on him, And so, as we look at this passage this evening, we'll we'll look at three heads. His prayer, his agony, and some implications from that. His prayer, his agony, and some implications from that. So with that, our first point, looking at Christ's prayer. So here in Christ's history, he's just finished partaking of the Passover and instituted the Lord's Supper in the upper room. Now the hour has finally come. All throughout his ministry he would say the hour has not yet come, but now the hour has come. So in order to prepare himself, to strengthen himself for this unfathomable task that he was about to undergo, he leaves the upper room. He goes to the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane, and he goes to pray to his father. He goes to the Mount of Olives and as the text says, he went as was his custom. The Mount of Olives. This was a place where he frequented often. He he retreated here often to, to pray to the Father. And so, that's why Judas knew where he would be. And Christ knows that Judas knows that he's coming here. So Christ goes on purpose to the place where he knows that he'll be captured. He goes to the Mount, knowing the traitor will bring his enemies and find him there. And he goes to pray that he might have the strength to endure what is coming. Yes, he indeed prays for the cup to pass, which we will will dig into in in, in a little bit, but he is already submitting to his Father by even going to the mountain. He is already in submission by going there, because he knows that this is the place where he will be captured, where the hour truly will come. He goes as a lamb to the slaughter. He goes voluntarily to the sword that will smite him. When he goes to the mount, the text tells us that he cautions his disciples in verse 40. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. This echoes what he just said. If you read in the chapter before, chapter 21, verse 36, he says very similarly, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So Jesus tells his disciples to pray that they would not enter temptation, especially the temptation that was coming soon. And then he himself, Christ, goes and he prays so that he might not enter into temptation. He models for his disciples, for his sheep, what submission to God and trust looks like. He gives an immediate example. He was tempted in all things like we are, yet without sin. So he needed to pray. Now, this text does not tell us this here, but I'm almost certain that the evil one was assailing him with temptations at this time that we could not even fathom. Beyond his own internal struggles that we see here in the text, Satan must have been attacking him beyond our wildest imaginations. I mean, think. If at the beginning of his ministry, if Satan was so visible and outright in attacking him and tempting him in the desert... Think of how much more he would have been forthright and dedicated to taking Christ down at the end of his ministry, at this time when Christ was so near to accomplishing that great work. We can't imagine what Christ was going through. So he enters into prayer, relying completely on the Father to sustain him. He even kneels, showing his humility that time it was custom that you would stand while praying but he he kneels if you read the same account in mark or in matthew it'll say he falls on his face before the father so the question is why did jesus the son of god not supply himself with all that he needed for strength for consolation from his own divine power being divine he could have easily equipped himself with all the strength with all that his frail human body and spirit would have needed. So why does he go to the Father? Why does he wait on the Lord? Why does he go to his knees before the Father? Well, he laid aside his glory and his power that he might become in all things like unto his brethren. He did not cease to be God, but he did cease the operation of his full glory and power. He was in a state of complete humiliation willingly. He was truly man. As we read in Hebrews, he learned obedience. Think of John 17, the great high priestly prayer that he prays. Verse 5 says, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What that does is that hints at the fact that there is a glory that Christ does not have now at this time when he prays. There's a glory which he is waiting to take up again. There's a glory which he's waiting to assume again when he returns to his Father. So now, at this point, as he prays, that glory is set aside and that power is set aside. So he goes to the Lord of heaven. He goes to the Father in complete reliance, in complete dependence, in complete trust. He goes to him as any man must. He goes to him in prayer. Now now when he's in prayer, what he experiences is no longer just teaching. It's no longer just example. Mark's account, chapter 14 of Mark, the account of this same event of our Lord, says, he took Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. This is not just to show his disciples what it's like to struggle. He's truly struggling. He's truly overcome almost with agony, with sorrow. This is what our Lord is now experiencing. So that takes us to our second point of agony. Looking at Christ's own agony. The little that we are told of the content of his prayer tells us here that he prayed in verse 42, Father, If you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. My friends, nothing that I say or that any of us could say this evening could ever bring upon us the kind of impression that a saying like this should have on us. My friends, this is the eternal, the infinite God of heaven, the Alpha and the Omega come down incarnate, dwelling in the flesh of man, a true body, a true soul, who is at this point falling down on the cold, hard ground, praying to the Father in heaven, asking if there is any other way. This is astonishing. But how could Jesus, the God-man, human and divine, how could he come to this point? How could he get to this point? he's sweating blood in agony where an angel has to be sent to comfort him how do we get to this point well it helps to first put in view what he's so sorrowful about what his agony is over so what was the cause of this great agony or what is the cause of this great torment beloved it was nothing else than the vivid reality that was coming ever nearer becoming ever more clear to him That the cup which the Father was to give him to drink was near. It was upon him. It was God's wrath. It was the curse of God, the weight of sin for his people, and the full fledged vengeance and justice of God poured forth in wrath that he would have to undergo as he took on the sin of his people. It was the distance from the comfort and the fellowship of God that he had only ever known. It was the sword that would smite him. It was the rod that would break him. My friends, this was upon him. God's wrath was coming upon him, and he was to take the sin of his people on his shoulders, and he was to face the unleashed wrath of God. Jesus is surely divine, and was surely truly and fully divine in this moment still. He was also truly man, truly man, like one of us, without sin, his frail and meager human body and soul would have to soon face something that nothing, that none of us could have ever fathom. The cup that he was about to drink was going to bring upon him a kind of physical and soul pain and torment we could never imagine. So rightfully, he is fearful. So we might ask, when, when he asks, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, Does this not imply that Jesus wanted a way out, or a different way? My friends, it does. Indeed it does. It shows that except, except for his Father's will, except for the Father's perfect plan to save and redeem his people, and Christ's own bride, by this plan and this plan alone, Jesus longed for another way. Now think, think of this. Could he have been truly human, Truly man, if knowing what was coming for him, he did not shrink from the terror of the Lord. Could he have been holy and pure and truly full of reverence and awe unto the Lord, unto God himself, if he did not tremble at the reality of wrath coming upon him? What man would not tremble at this? So we might ask even, it may come across our minds, but Was this not somehow sin? God forbid we would say Christ's sin. Is this not somehow in that category for Jesus to long for something other than what he knew was of the will of God? How do we reconcile that? I would say indeed it shows perhaps the weakness of Christ's humanity that we all suffer from, but it is not sin. It was not sin in the slightest. My friends, it would almost be apathy or contempt from Jesus himself if he knew of the full wrath of God, of what it entailed, of the intense vengeance that was coming upon him, on his body, on his soul, if he knew of the dreadfulness of that cup, if in his perfection he did not long for another way, knowing that. If he fully understood what was about to happen to him, if he did not at least wish for another way, to be free of that misery, to be free of that alienation from the Father, it would almost be indifference. Jesus had only ever known love from the Father. In time, according to his human nature, and in eternity, according to his divinity, all he ever knew was love. And so now, he is bracing for the incoming wrath of God, and it rightly brings him to trembling. It rightly brings him to trembling. Part of the hesitancy for Christ was that he understood that the Father's wrath, like no one else knew it. He understood full well what was before him. You see, his agony was not an agony of uncertainty. It was not that he didn't know what was going to happen, and he wasn't sure about what was coming. His agony was an agony of full certainty. He knew what he was about to undertake. And it was that agony, that certainty, that brought him to tremble. But notice immediately, immediately, he follows with this. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Nevertheless, with all of that taken into account, Father, nevertheless, not my will, but yours. My friends, we see something of a glimpse here that we will never comprehend. The unity, the perfection, the harmony of his humanity and his divinity. We see something here of what we read about it in Hebrews 5 of somehow Jesus the god man in his humanity learning obedience perfectly. This is Christ our Lord. Undoubtedly in this moment the spirit upheld him and brought forth through his remembrance clear clear memories and remembrances and truths of the father's love of eternal promises and rewards. He was reassured of his duty to perfect obedience for his people, for the glory of God, and so in this moment he perfectly submits to the will of God. He rightly trembles, and he perfectly submits. He shows his perfection here, his humility, his trust, his assurance in the eternal covenant that he had made with his Father, with the Spirit. Now, I want you to think of a time when you've been around someone who is in deep agony or deep sorrow. Maybe it was the death of a loved one, Maybe it was terrible news that they had just heard. Maybe it was the loss of a job. Maybe it was a spouse, a husband, or a wife leaving them suddenly. Whatever it was, they were in deep agony, deep sorrow, and rightfully so. We've all experienced this to some degree or or another. Someone that we know and that we care about is experiencing agony, and we wish we could just make it better for them. We, just, we wish we could just take away their agony and their sorrow, and we hate seeing them in such pain. We've all had this experience, and deep grief among us humans is, is a difficult thing to behold. But now imagine that you were witnessing the deep grief of the Son of God. A true agony. An agony unlike we've ever seen before, where one is even sweating blood. And while you wish you could do something about this agony, you can't because you are the reason he's in agony and you are the reason he's in sorrow my friend he has to face the wrath of God and he knows it and you cannot help him because it is your sin that put him in this position it is not his sin that he has to go before God with it is your sin it is my sin it is our sin we put him there we deserve to be there not him it reminds me of something that an old Scottish minister that by the name of, they called Rabbi Duncan, once said about the cross. He says, Do you know what Calvary was? Do you know what the cross was? Do you know what it was? He says, It was damnation, and he took it lovingly. It was damnation, and he took it lovingly. He took it for you. Took it for you. And he took it for you. That is why he pushed through it all. Indeed, we see that he wishes for the cup to pass, but he willingly submits. The Father's will. We must recognize that when the sins of his people and the guilt of those sins are imputed to Christ, were given to Christ, they did not just sort of float above his head abstractly. They did not come to him without having any sort of effect on him. As we we can see in Psalm 69, it's a psalm where Christ speaks to us through the Psalms about his sufferings. Verses 19 to 21 say, You know my reproach and the shame of my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart, so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. It's quite clear he's talking about the cross here. He says, The reproach that was brought upon him, the reproach by mere men, by the Israelites, by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the leaders of the time, the Romans. That reproach, he says, broke his heart, brought him to despair. That reproach was a false reproach. He knew he was innocent of all of that. It still brought him to despair. So now imagine the reproach that is brought upon him by the sins of his people. As he goes before his father bearing the sins of his people, his heart would be beyond broken. Maybe rightly as good reform folk, we might question this. We might say, how does, how does imputed sin bring sorrow to the Lord? Right? This is a legal act. This is a judicial act where our sin is imputed to him and his righteousness is imputed to us. It's legal. It's judicial. That is correct. So how can this bring sorrow to our Lord? I think this can only be understood in the way of contrast. The sorrow of sin imputed unto Christ might best be understood in the light of the joys that we experience in imputed righteousness. Maybe you felt it. Those times, or even maybe one time you felt it, where you truly understood what it meant to have Christ's righteousness as your own. You truly knew what it meant to be declared righteous before God. And you felt a joy that you can't even put into words. Now, we can imagine that the opposite is true. The amount of joy that you felt there, imagine the sorrow that imputed sin would bring to Christ. Not just the sin of one man, not just the sin of one church, the sin of all of his people. It's even escalated to a degree upon Christ, who is a sinless, perfect man of God, the God-man who never knew sin before. So imagine the sorrow it brought him. Imagine the sorrow it brought the Lord. And this is his agony. This is why he is in such agony and sorrow now. Well, briefly as we close, I just want to look at some implications. First and foremost, we must take it to heart that Christ did all of this willingly, voluntarily. He was not forced to do any of this. He does this for his own glory. He does this out of love for his people. And not just an abstract people, Not just the idea of some people. Individually, a people. Individually, individuals who make up a people. So that means he did this for you, he did this for you, and he did this for you. Do not forget that. Christ did this willingly for you. The agony, the intense sorrow that he felt, he pushed through it all for his people. For his own glory. He did this also not so that we would just pity him, that we would see him in this lowest state and pity him. He went through this so that we might worship him. He came to such a low estate that he might be exalted so high, that he might be the name above every name. And to drive it home, finally, he does this. He went through this for each and every one of us, knowing that the sin that he had to take on himself, that we would continue in that sin. He did that knowing... That he would save us and that we would still struggle with sin till the day we died. He did that knowing that we would so often return to the sin that put him there in the first place. He does that willingly. He did not go begrudgingly. He went out of love for you, even knowing your current failures, your past failures, and your future failures. He does that willingly. My friends, this was for you. The intensity, the deep sorrow that we've begun to just scratch the surface of that he felt here. This was done purposefully. Do not let that go unappreciated. What Christ went through and experienced, we will never fully understand. But it is laid out in Scripture for us that we might have a glimpse. Just a glimpse that we might see even darkly, dimly what he went through. We might see how our Lord suffered truly under agony. Truly, under sorrow, for us, for you. Marvel, my friends, at the Lord. Marvel at the Lord, and what He undertook for you. Worship the Lord for what He undertook for you. Do not take it for granted that you now have communion with the Lord. That you now have fellowship with the Lord, my friends. This is what He had to go through for that to happen. Run to Him. Bask in his glory. Bask in the fellowship you have with him. It is a privilege. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we, we thank you for the time that we've had to spend in your word. Lord, do not allow us to leave here tonight without a clearer sight of Christ our Lord. Without a clearer understanding of what he went through for his people, for us. God, may it stir in us a greater and a deeper love for our Lord, that we go forth with gratitude, with a more settled devotion to follow after you. Thank you, Father, Son, and Spirit, for the suffering and the agony of Christ by which we have been so undeservedly saved. Oh, glory to you now and forevermore. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.